0: Cinephile. Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles.
1: cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. Little this struggle, is incredible. Man. Moonlight won wow. Best Picture.
0: Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. Alright. There's baseball in World War II. It's kind of a <laughs> dream. Cinephile. The Adnan
1: Verk movie podcast. All right, yes, why wasn't I still recording? That would have been bold. Could have run that as the open. open. Great to have you back once again here on Cinephile. No blurb of a movie that I normally open with because honestly, there's no real reviews to be had today, although I am going to dive into the Zen Diaries of Gary Shanley, Judd Apatow's terrific new documentary. On HBO, but honestly, this is a podcast. This is a cinephile. If you want big-time guests, that is what you're getting this time out. Academy Award winner, Helen Hunt. Her new film is called The Miracle Season. It opens April 6th, and I had the pleasure of seeing it and talking to Helen about it. Not only the movie, but also we discussed As Good As It Gets, Castaway, other topics of that vein. And another huge get, Michael Imperioli. That's right, Christopher Moltisanti. From The Sopranos, five-time Emmy nominee and one-time winner for his performance in one of the great shows of all time. Also great as Spider in Goodfellas. Uh, A frequent collaborator, Spike Lee as well. He co-wrote Summer of Sam. So a lot to get into with Michael Imperioli as well. So once again, appreciate all the feedback that we always get on iTunes, rate and review. I rank my movies out of 4 police. Please do rank us out of five stars. We're getting a big push here, at least internally. We have a wall of podcasts here at ESPN, and I was stunned. I did not get the memo. No one alerted me. I walked by, said, oh, my God. Cinephile, we now actually have a framed picture of us up here. Dan, how much did you have to uh, cajole and persuade our bosses to make that happen? I can't tell you the amount of times I would bring it up in
2: meetings, and sometimes it was in jest, but most times I was serious, and it was like we had this wall of posters, and there was for shows that are now defunct, and the posters (laughs) were still up. It was podcasts that are no longer podcasts. And we just, we never got the support. There was never a poster. And Ray Necci, to his credit, moving on from ESPN Radio, on his last day, he said, I have a parting gift
1: for you. Yeah, all right, Ray. And he got the poster. Went out of his way to make sure our poster was put up. Uh, That's good stuff out of Ray Necci. We're going to miss Ray. Always did a great job here on ESPN Radio. Still staying with the company, but thanks to Ray for that parting gift from him. Huge uh, Guillermo del Toro fan. He's still celebrating the fact The Shape of Water won Best Picture. Uh, we also have, in honor of March Madness, our man Rick Passmore back in the fold, who is going to talk about this bracket we currently have on Cinephile. Go to C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. That's Cinephile, E-S-P-N, on Twitter, and we're doing our own movie bracket with sports movies. So we'll get into that in just a second explain It's very complicated, but I love the fact the brackets. You know, he went... Rather than the South region, the Midwest, Vancouver, New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles. Very clever hotbeds of cinema. The Cinephile Invitation Tourney. So more details on that in just a second. I did want to mention Gary Shaling, though. Now, I could talk about Gary Shaling a ton. When he passed away, I was actually here at ESPN, and I had to go do baseball tonight. And I remember telling my producer, Justin Havens, I was like, listen, I'm not uh, I'm not going to be a good frame of mind here. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, Gary Shaling passed away. And, and Jim Bowden, who's the a former Jim, was here. He was like, Oh yeah, that guy was great, man. I'm like, no, no, like I, I, like I'm, I need a minute here. Like I, I can't go in here and talk about Jose Bautista's swing and exit velocity right now of uh, Justin Verlander. Like I, I need a second. And I'm like, Oh, I, I don't really feel that way. I'm like, well, I do. So, you know, I'm going to need a minute here. And I, I thought about afterwards, like, and Shaling's one of my favorite comedians. Like where am I going to be when God forbid, God forbid, when Pacino or Marty or something happens? Like I'm, I'm going to need to take a week off. So Gary Shanling is one of my favorite comedians, and I don't think it is exaggerating to say that The Larry Sanders Show is in very much responsible for my career path, and I'll explain why. I would watch that show, now, a lot of people here are cool. I'm not cool, all right? They're like, almost famous. The only thing I am not is I am uncool. And in high school, you know, Harry Russillo and all these guys telling stories about getting drunk, meeting girls? In my high school ritual, I'm not exaggerating here, Saturday nights, they had TVO at the movies. All the Canadians know TVO would air these movies. So it was all the classic movies. So you'd get From Here to Eternity or On the Waterfront, 8 o'clock, TVO, Saturday Night at the Movies. And then The Larry Sanders Show, which was this show on HBO, and somehow they'd air it on CBC at Saturday at 12.05 a.m. and 12.35 a.m. And I'd be the guy who would tell my friends, like, I'm 15, 16, nerding out. This show is the funniest thing I've ever seen. you got to watch The Larry Sanders Show. And I had VHS tapes of it. And I was so heartened while watching the documentary to know that there are other nerds like me in different countries. Sasha Baron Cohen said, in England growing up, BBC One would air Seinfeld. BBC Two would air the Larry Sanders show. And BBC Two was more niche. I guess it's like ESPN, ESPN Two. And Sasha Baron Cohen says, Seinfeld was really funny. But all me and my buddies were like, dude, that Larry Sanders show, that's the perfect show. Like this show is – this is inspiring all of us to work in entertainment, to work in comedy. And Sasha Baron Cohen says in the documentary, Judd Apatow's documentary, which is currently available on HBO, parts one and two – he said, I don't want to speak for Ricky, meaning Ricky Gervais, but I think it influenced the office. Well, I at the office, I can speak for Ricky because I've seen Ricky Gervais say in other interviews that it was a huge influence. He said, oh, the Larry Sanders show, absolutely. He goes, I, I watched that show and the way they dealt with relationships, and it was so cringeworthy and yet so honest and so brilliant. That was my template for the office. Whenever people watch the office, they go, oh, David Brent, he says such crazy things and the reaction is so uncomfortable. He's like, well, yeah, that's the template from the Larry Sanders show. And so Judd Apatow has done an amazing gift with his documentary. We know when, when Shanling passed away, it obviously came out of nowhere. He had not been sick for a while and he'd recently been on Seinfeld's show, comedians in cars getting coffee. And they talked a lot about death in that episode. Shanling said to Jerry, he goes, you know, when I die, Shanling was big into boxing. Um, you know, it's a means of keeping in shape. So he goes, I want, um, I want like when I'm in the coffin, Jerry, he goes, I want to make sure that you have a judge there and just start counting me out like one, two, Like, he's not getting up. It's over. (laughs) (laughs) He also told the story to Seinfeld. He said, you know, I was recently at the doctor and the guy was blown away when he saw me. He goes, Gary Shanling. He goes, Yeah, he goes, Oh my God. He goes, Yeah, he goes, You're still alive. He goes, Well yeah. He goes, This is great news. Gary Shanling is still alive (laughs) because Shanling kind of disappeared from the public eye after the Larry Sanders show. He would do a little bit of movies, some voiceover over the hedge, but he wasn't really doing a whole lot. So it was just interesting. That was the last time I'd seen Gary Schilling, and then, of course, he passes away. So Apatow adores Gary Schilling. John Apatow, you now know as a famous writer, director, producer. But he got his start because of Gary and the Larry Sanders show. And as he says in the documentary, he goes, um, I first met Gary because he wanted me to write some jokes he was hosting the Grammys. And he goes, I must have written 100 jokes, and every single one, Gary made it better. And afterwards, he said, hey, do you want to come work on the Larry Sanders show with me? He's like, yeah. And Apatow said, I was kind of half in, half out. I would come for a couple of days, work with the writers a little bit. And then one day Gary said to me, he goes, you're directing the next one. And I was blown away because he goes, it was like he knew intuitively that's what I wanted to do, but I would never have the guts to do it to ask him. Uh, and this I want to say is like season three maybe. And the Larry Sanders show was six seasons. And by the end of it, Apatow was a major figure in it. And he goes, once the show ended, you know, when I was writing 40-Year-Old Virgin, when I was making Trainwreck, like I always go to Gary. It's not like I put his name in the movie, but he was always my friend, consultant, etc., helping me out. So he goes, you know, he was such a mentor for me. And that's why after he passed, Apatow said, i got to do something here. And this is a measure of Judd Apatow's clout. I don't know how many comedians that they would do this about. Because if I'm Dan Stanzik, I say I'm 32 years old. Yeah, I've heard of Gary Shanling, I know he's a comedian in the 80s. Burke tells me about Larry Sanders. It's kind of before my time, but I get that he's a big deal. So... I don't think he's like Eddie Murphy dying and he gets a six-hour miniseries. I would think Gary Shaling dies and you go, all right, people that know him, loved him, big in the comedian circles. doesn't know we're doing a four-hour documentary about this guy. Not just two hours, four hours on HBO. That's how much juice I've got. That's how important Gary is. And HBO says, all right, fine, that's what you want to do. And the interviews he gets, I mean, this is Leno and Conan O'Brien and Jim Carrey and guys that I didn't know Gary Shilling was that close with, like Dave Coulier from Full House and Bob Saget. And yeah, good to see Coulier. I hadn't seen Coulier in about 20 years. I'm like, that's Dave Coulier now? I'm like, all right, still playing hockey, big Red Wings fan. Two two Full House connections. Bob Saget also close with shambling I'm like, interesting. Um, so it's a measure of Aptos Club that he got it made, and it's transfixing because of the fact the wealth of material he has he has all of Gary's journals in the documentary, and so it's haunting watching it because on the one hand, you're telling the story of a comedian. He grew up in Tucson, Arizona, was traumatized by the death of his brother at cystic fibrosis. Uh His brother, you know, Shaling was only 11 years old when his brother died, older brother, and he idolized him, and his mom didn't even tell him. Like, he had to find out afterwards. He didn't even go to the funeral because, you know, they just didn't want to deal with it, I guess. I guess his mother didn't want to see... Didn't want Gary to see her grieving or they didn't want Gary to, have to deal with it. But he said he never got over that. Like in talking to friends and family, like my brother died and I never got that closure. I never got to see him. I never got to say goodbye to him. So stories like that are amazing. And you see the journals of Gary and, and all the stuff that he was always documenting as he went on. Big pivotal point in his life is when he became a comedian. And he said, this is a great story for aspiring actors, entertainment people, whatever you want to do in life. George Carlin, of course, giant figure of comedy. Shaling drove two hours to go see George Carlin and his act. And afterwards, he met him and he goes, hey, here's a bunch of my material. I'd love to get your read on it. And Carlin goes, if you come back here tomorrow, I'll take a look at it. and I'll give you some feedback. Unbelievable. Gary Shaling drives two hours back to Tucson, Arizona. The next night, goes to school, drives back to two hours to go, I know, I'm i guessing Phoenix. I'm not sure it was, but he drove two hours. And afterwards, George Carlin sees him and goes, yeah, okay, I got some notes for you. And he goes, you're really raw. But there's there's something on every page, to quote Armin Katan. And he goes, if you'd like to continue this, you've got something. And Gary Shandling goes, I don't think you understand how how much that means. When George Carlin says to you, you're pretty raw, but if you'd like to pursue this, I think you've got something. Like, that was all I needed. That's the validation I needed. He goes to Hollywood, becomes a stand-up comedian. He's a writer as well. Worked on Welcome Back, Cotter. It's Gary Shandling's show. It's a big show in the 80s. Rossillo, still a big fan. Used to break the fourth wall. He talked to the audience, et cetera. He was also filling in for Carson, and that story's great. The first time he fills in for Johnny, Kevin Nealon says afterwards, and he killed. They show the great clips. Like he killed. He was so funny. And Carson's, and Carson at the end, like, it's a great uh, little bit. He just goes, hey, that's Gary Shaling. He's this new comedian. You're going to be hearing a lot about him. I promise you that. I don't know how often Carson said that, but that time, I think he genuinely meant it. And Kevin Nealon said afterwards, he's backstage, Shaling fell into his arms and started crying. And he was just like, I, I don't know what else there is. Like, I just always dreamed of being on The Tonight Show, and I was just on The Tonight Show. Like, I don't even know what what I can do next to top this. So he does his TV show, and then he does the Larry Sanders show, and he wanted to do something different, and it was obviously very dark, but it was very honest and very raw. And what ended up happening was this is when late night went crazy. So Letterman is going to CBS, and then Shamling, after a year of the Larry Sanders show, got the offer from NBC to take over the 1230 slot. And they offered Gary, I'll look at the numbers. It's either four years, $20 million, or five years, $20 million, if my recall is right, which was a ton of money at that time. To replace Dave. And they show the clips of Shanling being there with Letterman. Letterman's like, hey, you're going to take my job, you're taking a late night. And they're going back and forth, joking around. And they interview Conan. And Conan goes, I was told by my manager, hey, it's either going to be you or Gary Shandling. and it looks like it's going to be Shandling. But, you know, hey, your audition was great, try it was great, but they're going to go with Gary. And Conan said, You know, I know Gary a little bit. There's no way he'll do that. And they're like, What do you mean? He goes, like, there's just no way Gary would get up day after day and grind it out and do a model I can guess. He's like, he goes, I don't want to sound, you know, pretentious. He said, but he's a real artist. Like, Gary's one of those guys that, like, there's, this is too routine to him. This is too, um, programmed to just come out and do a monologue and a guest. He's like, like, he's an artist. Like, Gary's going to do something else. Like, I don't, I think he's going to keep doing this Larry Sanders show thing. And true enough, Shandling turned down the offer. And later they show Charlie Rose asking him, and he goes, like, you've had great offers. Even the Tonight Show, when he was filling in regularly, he and Leno were the main fill-ins, and Shandling took himself out because he goes, listen, I'm too busy with the Gary Shandling show. I don't want to do two things. I don't want to give anything short shrift. He had to call Johnny and go, yeah, listen, I'm out. i got to stop filling in here. Like i got to just work on my show. And so he wanted to keep doing the Larry Sanders show. And, of course, the Larry Sanders show became one of the great shows of all time. It's such a template for so many situation comedies today, and it was so brilliant and recognized for its brilliance. They shot the Larry Sanders show in the same lot as Seinfeld. And uh, they would always joke with each other because their shows couldn't have been more different. Seinfeld's doing this sitcom, which became very popular with a show about nothing. And Shailin's doing a very dark show about celebrity and celebrity worship and about satire. And they said they'd take their, like, you know, coffee breaks together and stuff. And it would just be Gary Shailin and Jerry Seinfeld walking and complaining about crew members or this and that going on. But they'd have that moment together and they'd go back and do their job. And... Uh, it's just interesting what a toll that takes on you, and the the overwhelming feeling I had watching this. And once again, I hope everyone sees it. Gary Shandling, uh, you know, the Zen Life of him by Judd Apatow on HBO is of overwhelming sadness because he was a guy who was just so tormented. And I think part of it is that you know your brother dies of cystic fibrosis, and he's just some of you idolize, and you didn't get that closure to say goodbye to him. That will haunt you. And later, like, he's dating Linda Doucette, who was on the Larry Sanders show. She played his assistant. And and she really wanted to have a child, and Gary couldn't do it. And you see his journals. Like, it's it's so uh, revealing, seeing the, all of this guy's words. And he just goes, I don't know why I can't become a dad. I can't do it. And one of his cousins just kind of is guessing. It's tough to psychoanalyze a human being. But he goes, I just think that Gary felt like, what if I love this child as much as I love my brother, and then I, I lose the child just like I lost my brother. Like, I just can't go back to that kind of pain. And he goes, like, Gary never had a long relationship. He could never sustain anything like that. Like he died alone. Like it's just, it's sad that he wasn't able to do it. And Leno says, because I always tell young people trying to get into show business, it's like falling in love with a hooker. Like don't fall in love with show business. Have a wife, have kids, have hobbies, have something else. Because if it's just all you have, it'll consume you and it'll break your heart. And he goes, I think that's what happened with Gary. He was just, especially later on, the Larry Sanders show, a great critical, it came as a huge hit but he had falling out with his manager, Brad Gray. He was convinced that Brad Gray was triple dipping, meaning he was taking his commission as a manager. He also had stake in the show, the Larry Sanders show, and he was also taking some of the best writers in the Larry Sanders show and then using them on other projects. <clears throat> Brillstein Gray was the production company. Just Shoot Me was the show on NBC with David Spade, other shows. So eventually Gary said to him, like, I don't know, <clears throat> we got our show here, and then you're taking these guys and moving them somewhere else. He sued him for $100 million. And as Bob Saget says, you don't do a lawsuit like that unless you really want to just punish somebody. You just want to take them down for all intents and purposes. And somebody really smart in the documentary points out Gary felt like you're my business manager. Just take care of me. And Brad Gray was like, oh, I'm going to be this mogul and you're my client, but I'm going to use our stuff to go do other things. And it ended up ruining the friendship with Saget. It was one of Shaling's best friends. And Sagitt gets emotional in the documentary because he said, it's like Gary want me to pick sides. And I'm like, listen, Brad Gray's my manager. Like I'm like, those are my godchildren. And Gary was like, no, either you're with me or against me. And he goes, I made one joke in an article and I wasn't really taking a shot at Gary, but I was kind of making a lot of the situation. And then Shelling never talked to me again. He was like I could call him nothing. Like he just, he goes, the thing with Gary, if you crossed him, man, he goes, that was it. Like he was a sensitive guy and if you upset him, he just, he couldn't get through it. And Jay Leno said, he goes, after that $100 million lawsuit, he goes, whenever I would see him, he goes, I was always trying to compliment him a little bit more, trying to pick him up a little bit because I could just tell the fire had gone out of him a little bit. And it's telling that the Larry Sanders show ended in 1998. Shandling passed away two years ago. There's not much of substance he did after that. This was, I'm telling you, within Hollywood, everyone loved that show. You had the brain trust of Apatow and. I mean, Bob Odenkirk was on the show. Jon Stewart was on the show. Jon Stewart, the the, the last season's the best season. And Shanley says to Apatow, he goes, no, we're going to make the last season the best season because now that Brad Gray's out, I want to prove to people he had nothing to do with this. This was me. I'm the guy who made this thing happen. And that last season, Jon Stewart's replacing him as the host of their late-night talk show. And so the amount of talent that was on the show was amazing, but it took such a toll on him. And here's what's brilliant about Shanley. Within the pantheons of comedy, he took all of his insecurity and his self-loathing and his paranoia and put it into a TV show. And as Peter Tolan said, one of the writers, because we used to always call him Glary rather than Larry Sanders or Gary Shelling, It's Glary because, like, yeah, Gary's playing Larry. Like, that's him on the screen. And the humor of it and the greatness of it is that he was able to use those neuroses to entertain the masses. The overwhelming sadness of it is while watching that documentary, I said, I was laughing at somebody who was clearly in a lot of pain and who was having to use this to try to get through whatever he needed to get through. And it's, it's an interesting rumination with regards to insecurity and celebrity and ego. I myself have now found I'm so insecure now that I won't even ask people for feedback. Like, there's different levels of insecurity. Like, when you're really secure, you can ask somebody, what would you think? Whatever they say, you can take it. You know, when I've worked with Rossillo I noticed, he still does this, like, we don't work together anymore, but, he, like, after a couple of things, everything good? Is that good? And I'm like, he's not actually asking for an honest answer. He just wants, like, a quick validation. Like, everything good? That was good, right? I'm like, yeah, it was good. Yeah. Especially if someone says, that was good, right? They want to be like, yeah, it was great. Or, is everything good? You feeling good? I'm like, yeah. I don't even, like, on a daily basis, like, I don't even know how the show is. Like, we just did a show today, Gulk Wingo, like, I don't even want to ask Justin, our boss, like, how was the show? Because what if he goes, I oh, wasn't that good? I'm like, I don't even – like, I'm so insecure. I don't want to hear that. I want to just pretend the show is brilliant. And unless anybody tells me anything otherwise, that's it. Like, that's the – and Sheldon points that out. He goes, people think just because you have money or fame, like, of course, those issues always remain. Like, and that's why I think it motivated me towards my career. I swear to God because I go – I watched the Larry Sanders show in high school and I go, hey – I'm insecure and have self-loathing and don't like my body and, but I think I'm kind of funny and, hey, maybe I should be on TV too. Like, I could relate to these characters. I'm like, they're as screwed up as I am. Like, that's the level which it comes. This is the level of insecurity. I won't ask Stanzik after it set how it was, but he'll send me an email of like, uh, highlights that I can tweet out and I'm like, oh, okay, so he liked that. He liked that. That was good. I mean, he didn't mention that. I guess he didn't like that one that much. Like, and it's, I just think it's amazing when you think about celebrity culture. So wait, you don't show. want feedback or you do? I I I'd like feedback, but I'm I'm I don't take criticism well, so I'm scared to hear it. So so you only want affirmation, you only want positive no, 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 feedback.
2: No. You don't want me to tell you like that was bad. No, that I need lasted it. too long. That no, was terrible. I like I'd
1: like it, but I like it as a compliment. sandwich. You Should sandwich. have read that better. <laughs> I like it as a compliment sandwich. It has to be said carefully. Okay, If, Noted. if someone says, hey, I thought that was all right, but I would have done it this way," but I thought that was it was still good. look like, okay. Otherwise, and it's amazing. Like I'm watching the documentary, and I'm like, yeah, I would do that too. Or like, if someone says that to me, I'm like, yeah, I would, I would, yeah, that would hurt me too. And it's like, like Shelling said, it doesn't matter who you are, no matter what. If you're a performer, you know, you naturally react to these things a certain way. Um, so definitely check it out. Like I said, I obviously devoured it, and I hope people check it out and appreciate what a great comedian Gary Shelling really was. Jim Carrey, great stories in there as well. He's really funny. I mean, the amount of people that he touched, it was pretty impressive. Uh, throughout his career as a comedian. Uh, by the way, I, I, talked about, um, the Mark Marin podcast last time. Here's more reason to listen to it. Nick Nolte was a recent guest. You heard I mentioned last time I talked about Affliction, how much I loved it. It's currently available on HBO. Uh, thankfully, Mark Maron did ask him about Affliction. And, uh, Nolte said that, um, Paul Schrader, of course, who wrote and directed it, he sent him the script and Nolte was like, oh my God, we gotta do this. He's like, yeah, it's awesome. And then he said he read the forward to the book and, and already he was in because it said something about how the fact that fathers and sons for generations you know, they don't pass on the most important thing, which is love. They pass along these abusive tendencies. And that's why, you know, you can never get the whole thing fixed. He said he tried to get Paul Newman to do the role and, uh, Nolte sent him the script and Newman said, uh, it's great, but I, I can't do it. And he said, uh, what's the reasoning? And he goes, there's no way my audience would want to see me as this, like this abusive father and this drunkard. Like it's just not, it's just not something they'd be interested in. And it's not something I would be interested in in having the audience have to see me that way. That's another interesting thought here was when it comes to actors and celebrity and how you have to think about not only do I want to do this, but what will the audience accept of me? And that's the way you put it because the audience just wouldn't accept me. This. The verdict was as much as I can do. I'm a lawyer who's a good guy who's a drunk. I can't actually play a true villain like this who is just this horrible, heinous father. I always find that interesting too when it comes to actors. If you want to listen to the whole Nick Nolte podcast, the greatest line ever, Jeff Pivir said about it. Jeff Pivir is a great film critic for the Toronto Star. Greatest line ever. But Nick Nolte. He has a voice like a talking ashtray. If you listen to this Mark Maron podcast, Nolte sounds 77 going at 100. Yeah, yeah, that's a great story, but in Iowa it's unbelievable. Helen Hunt is also unbelievable. Her new film, The Miracle Season, is coming out in theaters April 6th. Take a listen to my interview right now. And joining us now is Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. Her new film, The Miracle Season, in theaters April 6. Helen, thanks so much for joining us on Cinephile. So I watched the film, and I'm amazed at the end credits. says, "Oh my God, this is a story of my friend Greg Found, who works here at ESPN." And oh it was, wow! And it was his sister Caroline, and his mother, that passed away, and so. Oh my word! I immediately texted him. I said, "I had no idea that your uh, tragedy was the basis for this film, but but tell me." what you thought of it, and he said that he was at the screening that you guys had, and he was also there at Iowa City for the premiere, and he thought it was a powerful movie, and he said, I quote Helen, we hope it'll be inspiring for women to see that portrayed on screen and what the entire team went through. In terms of your research, he said William Hurt reached out to his dad, and they kind of developed a friendship. How about for yourself? What was the research process like for you?
3: Um, Kathy Bresnahan, who I play, was very willing to get on a plane and come and stay with me for a few days. We had a lot of long meals together. She really opened up her heart and her story to me. Um, She taught my daughter how to set a volleyball so I could watch her do that. So that was sort of a win-win-win. And then all the way along, she was right there on the other end of the phone or came down a couple of times and was very happy to have me call her right and say, does this seem right to you? Does this I'm not sure about this. What do you think? So I, I felt nothing but support the whole way along.
1: And that's great to know because I wonder, For from your purposes, you're trying to, of course, you know, tell a true life story, but you are just going from the script and trying to adapt it and have that level of authenticity to it. I always love seeing because I remember my brother played volleyball. I know a lot of people love the sport. I like just the verbiage that you're using. The one uh, scene where you're challenging, uh, the players and you tell one of the players, you know, you got to serve this into zone one or you've got to do 15 ladders. That, that type yeah. of, uh, you know, and talk about the setting, the fact that, you know, when you're setting the ball, it has to be so quiet. It's almost imperceptible to the ear. Was that in the script or is that something that Kathy kind of discussed with you?
3: Um, it was in the script. We had two wonderful coaches who choreographed every point, um, because it wasn't just, you know, you don't, you don't think about that, but every point is a piece of story. The fact that this one makes that shot, the fact that this one misses, the fact that this one sets that one up, all those forward the story along. So they were all choreographed, um, touch by touch by touch. So those two coaches helped us a lot with that sort of thing. And, um... And all the screenwriters who contributed to the script, um, at least the two that I know the best, are big sports fans. So so it was a team effort, of course.
1: Yeah, and you're right. That last point, which ended up being the actual point with which they won the title, when I saw the real video, I said, Oh, my God, that's exactly what you see in your film." No, it's so- exactly
3: the same. And it, that's not always the goal. Sometimes in telling a real story, it's, it benefits by you changing it some in order to get the um, overall story to line up. You sure. know what I mean? The spirit of the thing sometimes means... You need to fictionalize some things, but this movie didn't seem to go that way. It seemed that the truer and closer we stayed to what happened, the more the the story
1: came to life yeah i think the real the the best compliment i could pay you helen with your performance with the film is that you know a lot of sports movies understandably have to be formulaic but most films i suppose are when you're working within a certain type of genre but i thought the film was genuinely heartfelt and i think for that target market like i think if you're a female volleyball player i don't know how you won't be overwhelmed by this film because it's done with such sincerity by you and the entire team
3: oh good thank you
1: I think for yourself, though, have you had you played any other coaches in other films? Was that part of the appeal of this film, or was it just the script and what you, um, what you found um, interesting? It
3: was everything. I've worked with Sean McNamara before, and it's very fun when you find someone you're comfortable with to work with them more than once. Then I saw that this could be a terrific part. I'm a big sports movie fan, loved Miracle, would love to be Kurt Russell. <laughs> um, but then, once I got to know this family and this family of friends and stood there on the court surrounded by these, you know, 20-something women, I I realized, oh, this is the perfect movie for me to be in. This is this movie's about everything I care about, coming through something hard, circling up with women, women supporting other women. So it, it turned out, and I didn't even see it at first, to be um, exactly the movie I should be doing right now.
1: The Miracle Season, starring Helen Hunt and William Hurt in theaters, April 6th I encourage all of you to check it out I do want to dive into a bit of your filmography Helen if you'll indulge me I love the movie as good as it gets it's one of my favorite romantic comedies and I was so happy that you and Jack Nicholson both won Oscars for your performances I particularly love that scene where you're threatening to walk out of the restaurant unless he pays you a compliment and then he says that he starts taking the pills again and you say I don't really get how that's a compliment for me and he says you make me want to be a better man
3: tell me about um... that
1: scene there's such great chemistry between both of you in that scene
3: well, we had great chemistry, but mostly we had great writing. Um, you know, I see how people approach me when they want to talk about that movie, and it got to something very deep in them, and they kind of give me the credit, but really it's the writing got to them, and I think we both worked hard and did a terrific job bringing it to life, but that movie is about something I wouldn't even know how to describe, but um, but it really seemed to reach people.
1: What's something about Jack Nicholson we wouldn't appreciate unless you worked with him in a film like you did?
3: I was expecting him to be this kind of wild exotic creature that worked in a way I would never understand and he he, that's not what I encountered. I encountered someone who like me had been in acting class forever and had questions about the characters and their relationship that were similar to my questions and you know, so I found a fellow rather than just this icon.
1: And James L. Brooks, speaking of the great writing and being an icon, how much input did he get from you and Jack on the script, or did you find it was all kind of there on the page and you just had to interpret it?
3: I mean both. It's it's mostly him, but but both of us had really strong ideas about what the characters should be and how we how to best sew ourselves to the characters and that I would say, and this is a compliment to Jim, that it was sort of seamless, he deeply considered and was um wanting to get our input and at the same time knew the movie he was after. So there there was no, um, he's the boss and we're the, the, you know, the soldiers in line. But but, but he was the boss because um, his particular brain is what gave birth to that movie.
1: Another wonderful performance you gave was in the film The Sessions, in which you were also nominated for an Academy Award and well deserved it. I thought it was a, a really wonderful story. Um, you know playing this woman who is you had to be so open in that film you know not only physically but emotionally being somebody who is being nurturing and and you know just kind of showing her sexuality to a guy who's in need what was it about mm-hmm. the sessions that appealed to you
3: everything you just said i mean i i was then and am still so exhausted and traumatized from the sexualized violence in film the the uh commodification of women. And, and so to be part of a movie about healthy sex was a privilege. That's you know, when I'm long gone, I hope that movie, I hope young people watch that movie because it, um, you know, his disability allows the movie to look at sexuality for what it is, which is, you know, not an elegant, well-lit um, conquest, but a, a clumsy, loving human encounter between two people.
1: Now, there's no doubt. You and John Hawks, terrific in that film. I encourage people to check out the sessions. Castaway, you give a terrific performance. Obviously, it's such an emotional movie and people often think about Tom and the volleyball. But I love that last scene where you come running out of the house, uh, because it, it just kind of, it goes to all, I think, the romanticism within all of us. They want to see these characters again. And yet it's so true in the fact that they do not stay together and the fact that, you know, life has changed. Um, was there any part of you that thought that they should stay together? Did Tom feel that way? Did Robert Zemeckis feel that way? Or you all thought this was the natural ending for the film?
3: No, I think some of the audience felt that way. But I, I mean, I was teaming up with them to tell this story. And this is a story about a person who goes from being kind of shut down to becoming an open, empathetic human being and... And I mean, I don't know how they looked at it, but I looked at it that they really weren't the right people for each other in the end. And um, and also life happens and it does things don't you can't undo things that have happened. You can't go back in time. So I really like the way it ended.
1: Yeah. As a sports caster, we all get a big laugh from the line where Tom says, "So tell me that the, the Titans are in Tennessee now. Like what? Like this is <laughs> right,
3: right.
1: <laughs> That's what we'd be thinking about here as sports fans. Well, the, food right. is, the movie is called The Miracle Season. It's in theaters April 6th. You've had a wonderful career, Helen. Also a big fan of Mr. Saturday Night, Billy Crystal, of course, Kiss of Death uh, with Nicholas Cage. So congrats on a wonderful career and best of luck
4: with the film.
3: Thank you.
0: And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle.
4: It took 15 minutes
2: to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh,
0: this can't be good.
2: To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO.
0: GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance.
1: Michael Imperioli is a terrific actor, and what a get for us here. Thanks to Carlton Gillespie for making it happen. I asked him about The Sopranos, of course the role that made him so famous, of Christopher Moltisanti, but also about his affiliation with Spike Lee and his new book, which is coming out now. Take a listen to my interview with Michael Imperioli right here on Cinefile. And a real pleasure to talk to the great Michael Imperioli right now on Cinephile. He's got a new ABC comedy series, Alex Inc., which premieres Wednesday, March 28th. He stars alongside Zach Braff. Looks very funny. He's also got a new book. His first novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, which will be released April 3rd. We'll talk about both of those topics and much more. But, Michael, i got to dive into The Sopranos, my man. Five-time Emmy nomination, and, of course, you won. Well-deserved for your role as Christopher Moltisanti. And I've got to tell you. That performance had a personal impact on me, and I'll tell you the specific scene. I don't know if there was a better episode than the one where Adriana gets whacked. and
5: That was a good one.
1: I tell you, the best acting you did on that show, and there was a lot of great scenes to choose from, is when Christopher decides that he's going to collude with Adriana and they're going to take off. And he goes to the gas station and that shot where you look at the guy and he's got the kids and the mullet and he looks so defeated. I swear to God, for years that impacted me in terms of commitment because I was like, no, I can't get married. I can't have kids. Just like when Christopher looks at that guy, all of his dreams are dashed. And you're acting the way you just look at that guy and go, all right, if I go into witness protection, that's my life. I'm not going to do that. And then you make that decision uh to, to rattle out. Tell me about that scene, that entire episode. It was so great.
5: It is, um, it is a really good scene. And it's, you know, it's kind of more of a visual thing than anything else, right? And it's, you know, he realized that the identity he had of being a gangster was really, I think, who who he felt he was. And without that, he was nobody. And he realized uh, that was the decision he had to make. And his identity as a gangster and what what that did to his ego and his psyche was more important even than the loss of of his, you know, that he had for his woman, which is a, a tough decision, but, that that's what he
1: did. I love the fact that you were able to show so much vulnerability within Christopher. Like, at its worst, he's a junkie. He's a drug addict. He's a, a killer. But at his best, he's like a kind-hearted soul. Like, he seems like a genuinely sweet guy, very sensitive, like me, loves movies, you know, loves being a gangster, like you said, loves being with the guys. And so I think you were able to give a lot of dimension. And, and it really hit in that first season, that episode, uh, The Legend of Christopher Moltisanti. And that, that scene where you're talking to Paulie about what's my arc. I thought it was so it was so clever because it's as if, and I'm sure it was you and it's David Chase and all of you together. But there have been so many great gangster movies, and we'll get into Goodfellas in a second. But the, the gangster genre has been so well done. The Sopranos was so great because you're dealing within those conventions and you're also being self referential. You're also referring to things like arc and storyline, the fact that you're an aspiring screenwriter, and the fact that later on, you know, one of the Baldwins is playing Tony in the movie, which you write. Right. Like that, all those kinds of levels. How did you kind of navigate the fact that it was self referential and yet, at its heart, it is a show about gangsters?
5: Well, one of the things I found really admirable about the character there's a lot that's not admirable about the character but <laughs> one of the things that was was that he he actually was willing to work for things like he he liked being a gangster and kind of believed in it and worked really hard at it and and, and you know and wanted to work his way up the ladder and take on more and more responsibilities and did and 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 the same goes for his aspirations to be in the movies, like where a lot of people, a lot of people always talk about, hey, oh, my life is so interesting. I should write a story, I'm a screenplay. Or, if I can write, I would do that. And he actually did the work and wrote a movie and sat his ass in the chair and, you know, and did it, you know. And, and there's something about that, you know, put putting putting the work into achieving his dreams that I always found admirable. Um, as far as the self-referential thing, I think there are kind of crossovers where, I mean, I've heard of some, especially like in the independent world where there were movies that were being funded by, you know, organized crime here and there, and I've heard rumors about those things. So I think, I think those lines do get blurred in reality sometimes, in a point of fact.
1: It's a landmark show, and it's going to go down as one of the greatest shows of all time, and you were such an integral part of it because I know not only as an actor, but also you're a guy who writes and and was involved with the creative process and what to do with the character. And I don't know if I laughed harder, by the way, at the scene where Scorsese's walking into the theater, and Christopher yells at, hey, Marty, I love Kendoon. Was that right. Was that in the script? Was that an ad lib? Tell me about
5: that. No, that's not an album. That was a, that was a scripted <laughs> line, but it was not Martin Scorsese. It was it was a guy who looks a lot like. Him, that's right. That's right. He
1: looks like Marty because I remember seeing The Departed, and on that. Uh, DVD, there's actually a commentary section, and Marty references that when talking about Condu. He's like, oh yeah, they referenced it in The Sopranos. In fact, they loved it. It Oh, did he? On the the
5: commentary section.
1: It's hilarious. We're talking with Michael Imperioli once again. He's got a new TV show out on HB, on ABC. I encourage everyone to check it out. Also his novel, which we'll get into in just a second. But speaking of Marty and Goodfellas, I have, Heard you tell the story. I know you were talking to Rich Eisen. I think a couple of years ago, and you told the story of how you got the role. Ellen Lewis Scorsese's longtime uh, casting director. Um, you know, you got to to do it, and you you knew improvisation was key with Marty, and that would kind of help you land the role. And sure enough, you get to play Spider. Um, which right. I, again, I credit you as a smart guy to be like, listen, you did your homework, right? What score says into? Let me figure out how to play with this guy a little bit. What was it that you think you were able to do on set in terms of working with De Niro and Marty and Pesci that was able to make you fit within that world?
5: Well, I, for somehow, and it was a long time ago, and I was really young, and I, in some ways I don't really know where I got the courage to do it, but somehow I wasn't, uh, afraid to, um, act with them, you know. And, and those scenes were all ad-libbed, except for the one line that got me killed, but <laughs> which I won't repeat on the air. But um, all those scenes were ad-libbed, and they were different every take. But, um, you know, uh, I just I found the courage to, you know, do it, you know, and ad-lib with them and, you know, answer back and give and take. And, and it was really because of Marty that I um, I felt so comfortable, because... He didn't know me. I was really young. He cast me, and he made me feel like I was a uh, welcome there and respected and an important part of the production. So and he said, you know, he he, he gave me the space and the room to act, which was very generous of him, and, and uh, he took a shot, you know?
1: Yeah, listen, Italian-American kid, from New York, you're getting to act with, with Marty and De Niro and Pesci. I mean, put that in sports terms for me here.
5: That's like you're playing... Double A, and the Yankees are in the World Series, and they call you to, you know, pinch hit, or, you know, or, uh, well, the, I guess if they're playing in the National League, they would have pinch hitters, but, um, <laughs> you know, come in and, you know, play shortstop in the third inning or something like that. I mean, it's that. The stakes were that high for me,
1: really. Yeah, and you were brilliant in the role. We're talking with Michael Imperioli right now on Cinephile. Before we get into your latest TV series and your book, I loved the, the early films of Spike Lee, and I know you're good friends with Spike. And I was going back, and I had to kind of recall my brain, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're Jungle Fever, hmm yeah, Malcolm X, uh-huh. But the one I really want to focus on with you for the purpose of this interview is Summer of Sam, which I think is a really underrated Spike Lee movie. I know you co-wrote it. Uh, I believe you co-produced yeah. it as well. And I think... There's a couple of scenes I particularly, I still think of it all the time. One is that montage set to The Who, uh, where Adrian Brody is, you know, going wild and stuff and Teenage Wasteland's playing. And also the scene after, uh, Mira Servino and John Leguizamo have the orgy and then they have that huge argument in the car. And it, right. it reminded me of a Cassavetti's movie. Like she might as well be Gina Rollins. Like she's so emotional and so fed up and so fired up with this guy and it's so raw. Um, just tell me about that scene. How much of it was written? How much was improvised? And, 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 cause I really think about it quite a bit.
5: Um, Well, those scenes were all in the original script, which was written by myself and uh, Victor Colicchio, who's a writer and actor, and and then we brought it to Spike, who, you know, really fell in love with the story and wanted to direct it, and, and, uh, you know, the scenes were there and the emotions were there, but really... I cast it with the right people. First of all, of course, there were all, you know, such great actors in that movie. And then he really brought it to life with the way he, especially the way he edited that, you know, the cross cutting of, you know, Adrian Brody. And then, it, 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 you know, what, he, what else was going on and his, you know, the, the, this the love of cinema that Spike brings to all his work, um, just took it over the top, I think for me, and it was a, Seeing that's when, when I saw the movie screened for the first time, and I saw it for the first time in, at the premiere in a big theater, a lot of people, it was just uh, really uh, very, very, very exciting.
1: Yeah, I think it's a special movie, and I think over time more people will revisit it, because it really tapped into that paranoia and that urgency and... Uh... It really was a terrific film. we are talking with Michael Imperioli. His new ABC comedy series, Alex Inc., premieres Wednesday, March 28th. You and Zach Braff. That's a pretty good tandem. Tell me about the show.
5: The show, I mean, Zach plays a guy who uh, is, you know, around 40, you know, wife and kids, and decides to quit his job because he feels kind of lost and unfulfilled, and he starts his own podcast company. Uh, And he hires me, his cousin, uh, who is a little older, and I don't know anything about I don't even know what a podcast is at the time, but yet I'm not really intimidated by that fact and think I could still do a uh, a good job contributing to this company. Uh, and, you know, a, a company that's really kind of on the cutting edge of technology, although my character knows nothing about technology. So uh, for me, it's it's really fun. I think it's a very smartly written show and, and, and a very funny show.
1: I definitely look forward to it. You and Zach Pratt, both a couple of guys who I think uh, have shown that your ability to do humor, I thought Detroit 187 was really underrated, Michael. I know people who like it a lot. I'm Canadian and I know Shama Jumder, fellow Canadian, was on that show and I thought it was a, it was a clever show and I wish it had gotten a little more run, but I think you're I, I hope you enjoy doing comedy as much as I enjoy seeing you do comedy because I think you're, you're underrated at it.
5: I do enjoy comedy. I mean, to me, The the Sopranos was, you know, largely a comedy. I mean, it's obviously a drama and there's heavy, heavy duty, you know, tragic things and violent things going on. But there's an awful lot of humor in every episode.
1: No question. New book is coming out. I love this. I love when actors can show uh, they can stretch. Sean Penn, in fact, just wrote a book as well. He's got one out. Your book is called The Perfume Burned His Eyes. It'll be released April 3rd. What's it all about?
5: It's a novel, and it's a coming-of-age story about a 16-year-old boy who moves from Queens to Manhattan in in 1976 after the death of his father and grandfather. And he goes from kind of a middle-class blue-collar life, and all of a sudden his mother inherits some money, and they're living in this, you know, kind of fancy apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And um, the great rock legend, Lou Reed, happens to be living in the kids' building, and the two of them strike up a uh, kind of interesting friendship and Lou becomes almost a surrogate father figure to the kid. And as the kid navigates all the, you know, threshold, uh, all the um, gateways to adulthood that, that teenagers go through.
2: Yeah,
1: Joyce Carol Oates, who had a great blur, vividly imagined, compelling and sympathetic. The perfume burned his eyes, convinces with the force of its emotional intensity. So I'll be looking forward to this book. What was it about writing a novel? As I mentioned, you've, you've shown you can write scripts for the screen. What was it about writing a novel that appealed to you?
5: Um, Well, I, I love uh, fiction and I, you know, I'm a kind of a fiction junkie and read lots and lots of books and have been working on writing and creating some kind of narrative prose piece of work that and I didn't get anywhere with anything for a long time. And finally, I found a story and a way in with this. Um, but I, I like the idea of the book being an end unto itself, which a screenplay or a teleplay is really more of a blueprint, you know, for the finished movie or episode, whereas the book is an end in itself and stands alone, and uh, you don't really need anybody else, well, beside the publisher, which is a big deal, but uh, <laughs> it's not so much of a collaborative thing, wow. and I like the idea of that.
1: You've always been a creative force, so I love seeing you stretch out in this new direction. Once again, Alex, Inc. is the ABC comedy series Wednesday, March 28th, that premieres And the book, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, released April 3rd. Michael Imperioli, thank you so much for the time, man. You've given me so much with The Sopranos and Goodfellas and the Spike Lee films and so much more. So I really appreciate your time.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, podcasters. Spotify is making it easy for you to stream this podcast and many others like it on your mobile device, desktop app, and smart speaker. Open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the browse channel, then click on the podcast section. You'll be able to stay thoroughly entertained during your commute to work, drive home, and downtime now thanks to Spotify. A Hollywood career spanning decades, and the tales of Tinseltown are told
5: here, Inside the Lion's Den, with Ben
0: Lyons. Alright, I'm very excited for this week's edition of The Lion's Den. Joining me in studio here in LA right now is a documentary filmmaker that I first crossed paths with a few years ago when he had a movie up at the Toronto Film Festival and it seems like he just cranks out docs. Every year, it's like one after the other after another. And now he's here for one that's a look back on the, on the history of EDM. It's what we started. The great Burt Marcus is joining us live in studio on Cinephile. Dude, what was the entry point? What sparked the interest for you to want to go down this road and tell the def- definitive story of the history of EDM?
4: What had happened was I was approached by a bunch of people who are in the industry and they had always been telling me, you know, there's never been a documentary made on this genre that's like all encompassing, that encompasses the last 30 years. People don't know the history of, of what we've done and how this music came to be. They just started hearing it all of a sudden, you know, in the Vegas clubs and in Ibiza and all you know, all over and it, it had this huge surge in the last few years and people kind of thought it came out of the ether out of nowhere.
0: The stuff I really enjoy about the film is some of that old footage, seeing clubs in Ibiza in the 80s or or to learn about some of the other social and and political issues that were surrounding the genre from drug use to zoning laws to politics. Like there's a lot of other stuff at play. So just how much fun was it for you? To go back and find that old footage. And I'm just sitting there being like, all right, my mom went to Studio 54. I hope she doesn't pop up in the background at any of this footage. She didn't think.
4: Well, I put her on the cutting room floor. Oh, I God. did it because I know you personally <laughs> and I like you.
0: But what was it like to go back and look to see how people were partying back in the 80s? It's it was wild footage.
4: Yeah, it's a trip, man. I mean, people knew how to party back then. It was, you really see kind of how Ibiza came to be and, and why it's such a, a, a huge thing now. You see how you have these festivals like like EDC and Ultra and Coachella now um that we're also familiar with but what's cool is to see the stuff from back in the day that actually led to this and those really all came from raves you know in these cornfields on people's farmlands like in the middle of the night where they would have a beeper number and be told where to go and i think a lot of these This footage was so hard to find, and I wanted to find footage that had never been seen anywhere before, not stuff that you can YouTube or Google or um, had ever been used in any of the other films. So that was actually a huge challenge as well, is how do we find footage that people have not seen? And a lot of that was scouring all our main characters that have been around since back in the day, Carl Cox, Richie Houghton, Tiesto, um, Paul Oakenfold, a lot of the OGs, Sasha these kind of legends from back in the day, going through even their material and their archives and their phones and like their old VHS tapes, and really going through like all this garage footage that had never seen the light of day. So you you have a deeper appreciation for where we are today.
0: Essentially, you, you name some of those like heavy hitters in the genre, and even if you're not a diehard EDM fan, you've probably heard of those names. You've probably been at one of those guys' parties, just going to Vegas or something. But in the NBA and, and other pro sports, there there tends to be some resentment from previous generations um, in regards to the success that today's generation has and the money the guys make and an average, you know, swingman on the bucks is making 18 million a year it's, it's, it's and Clyde Frazier made, you know, 200 grand. So I understand that. Does that exist in the EDM world? I didn't, when I watched your film, I don't feel like those guys are really salty. It seems like they've all made enough money, but there is some kind of tension that exists between guys like you mentioned carl cox and uh you know an 18 year old today who's just playing you know music off his laptop and next thing you know is the biggest star in the world i mean that's your
4: your analogy is perfect it's like you look at sports today and you have guys who we barely heard of or guys who barely get off the bench who are inked into you know 75 million dollar guaranteed contract and then you have hall of famers who have probably never made half that in their entire life and are the only reason that you have these TV deals that are paying these players. Very similar to this genre. I mean, guys like... Carl Cox is an anomaly. You know, we'll get into him. But, you know, you you talk about a guy who plays 12-hour sets without one break. You know, he takes like one bathroom break, has like four beers, and is playing 12 hours nonstop.
0: And he's been DJing in Ibiza for like 30 years. correct? Yeah.
4: And then you juxtapose that with, like you said, a Martin Garrix or, you know, one of these new guys who, you know, it's the technology that's made t- available to them is different. So these guys now get on for, you know, two-hour sets, and they're pre-recorded sets But it doesn't mean that they're not, like, talented and playing in in their own right. It's just a totally different thing. One guy's mixing on vinyls and, you know, really making records. You had to be super talented to do it. And now you have to be talented to do it, but it's different and it's more accessible Uh, and you have, it's just totally different. And like you said, the amount of money people are making now is through the roof. So yeah, that does exist in this genre because this is the first time there's ever been a film in what we started that has the underground and mainstream, you know, EDM stars all in one film. Mm -hmm. A lot of the underground guys view the EDM stars as like bubblegum pop guys or pop stars and kind of, you know, commercial guys, not guys who are true to, you know, what dance music is supposed to be and meant to be. And so, yeah, you have the first time you have set that are in Moby and these really, like, legendary underground kind of artists in the same film as, you know, Afrojack and Tiesto and, of course, our lead Martin Garrix.
0: The film is what we started. It's the history of EDM. It's rise to the forefront of the popular music scene across the world. Uh, the director, Burt Marcus, is joining us. When I watch a movie like this, I'm thinking of you just to the side of the stage, all the confetti and the fire and all the craziness that goes on. I'm like, this dude gets to go to all these shoots you were at some of the biggest concerts in the world what was the craziest party you got to go to from making a movie about the history of EDM
4: well first I probably took years off my life because we had a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment you know around ravers and partiers that have not slept in like a week so just uh, that alone and having guys carry like a hundred thousand dollar lens like right in front of me while they're being like tackled was it's not an experience I even want to remember but you know the good stuff was you know Traveling in Ibiza, and seeing Carl Cox's last show at Space, and traveling the world with him and Martin Garrix. I mean, these guys are rock stars. I mean, and, and and I had a new appreciation for what they do too, because these guys don't eat, they don't you know sleep, they don't drink. They're they're full on hustle mode. They work so hard. They create all their own stuff. I I think the best part is when you're able to see these fans, and you know they're. These people in the audience that are just so happy, and you're seeing that, like how the 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 music has such a positive effect on them, um, and has such a positive effect on their life, and you you don't even realize the power of music until you really travel with guys like this. But yeah, going to these shows and sitting, you know, right next to Martin, his first time he performs on Ultra in front of over 120,000 people. I mean, it's surreal.
0: Sounds like a giant anxiety attack, to be honest. <laughs> it's what, you're away I from the sit audience, so you're the good. Couch ben w- would be good. Sit on the couch and watch a Nick game. I think that's more my speed. Um, hey, congrats on the movie. Uh, how can people check it out?
4: Yeah. So go to whatwestartedmovie.com and you can get a whole listing of all the screenings and, uh, and all the
0: links. Good stuff. Bert, appreciate you coming by and, uh, knowing you, I'm sure you've like wrapped another documentary and you'll be on the show again next week. So yeah, thanks so much, dude. Appreciate
4: it. Love it, man. Thanks, bro.
0: All right, Passmore, explain
1: Cinephile invitation tourney. ESPN had posted a uh,
2: movie madness bracket last week with, I believe it was just 32 films. And between some of the uh, snubs, the seating, people weren't happy. And I kind of noticed that pretty quickly. So I decided that we should kind of see where uh, Cinephile, the secondary tourney, the snub tourney, Uh, where we could maybe improve upon what was left out. Uh, So last night I posted the Cinephile Invitation Tourney 48 movie bracket, broken up by uh, cities that have a major film production presence. And all of the films on this list were snubbed from the ESPN bracket. Uh, Another part of the uh, tournament was they had to be a modern film, so from 1970 and forward, because I got a lot of things like, well, what about um, the Hustler? Well, that was 61. It was didn't count. Or Pride of the Yankees. That was 42. You know, <laughs> Garrix, people are very
1: upset about Pride it, of the Yankees it, being. It's with, too. Yeah. It's too
2: old. You know, it's right. modern day. I mean, there's new technology. We have to kind of run with that. And the third thing was, if a film, if there's only one film per franchise, so if a film got snubbed, that was a sequel that was in the ESPN bracket. Sorry, Mighty Ducks Two, not making this bracket. One seeds uh, got the first round by One, two, three, four seeds, first round buy. And you can currently vote on them on the Cinephile Twitter page. They're currently up and running. Uh, by the time everyone's hearing this, uh, round one will already be over. Uh, we'll be into round two. And so I'm just going to gauge your interest or like, what your opinion is on some of the first round buys that we gave. In the Vancouver region,
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Bull Durham, The Natural, Mystery Alaska,
1: and Glory Road. All came in with first round buys. Are you kidding me, Mystery Alaska? I mean, that's maybe we love Steve Levy. You know, in honor of Leaves, I'll give it a pass. Glory Road. I mean, it's it's awfully sentimental. Um, the Los Angeles Division first round
2: buys the Fighter. Love it. Blue Chips. Nolte. Great. Sixty one asterisk. The Billy Crystal, Barry Pepper film about uh, Lou Gehrig and his sixty one home runs right before he gets stricken with ALS, and eight men out.
1: Eight minute, I love. I don't believe that was in the list that it ESPN. Was, it was not. That's why it made this tournament a staggering omission. Cinephile, ESPN vote. Let us know, and we'll keep it updated for next time. Is that yep.
2: correct? It'll be it'll be going every single day until honestly the national championship till Monday. I believe uh, I have it laid out. So every single day voting will be going on until the championship uh, match. Uh, Passport, Let's talk more about the one
1: seats here and on the east side now.
2: Yep, on the uh, in the New York uh, division. Uh, New York region tearjerker division, big surprise. Both of these got omitted. I don't know how both of these got omitted from the ESPN bracket, but Million Dollar Baby and Brian's Song, uh, two just, wow. I mean, staggering. powerhouse. Yeah, two, especially with the emotion. I mean, th- these are movies that make grown that can make a grown man cry. And that's Tear the jerkers. whole point of it. Tearjerkers yeah. and Brian's Song, and especially Million Dollar Baby, you know, Academy Award winner. Not even thought of in the 32. Rocky two gets in before Million Dollar Baby. Complete, complete snub. Uh, the Problem Child uh, Division of New York. He got game. I think that's kind of a, a listener favor. People love Jesus Shuttlesworth, Denzel Washington. Wasn't even brought up in the 32. And Tin Cup, Kevin Costner, Golf Pro. Fantastic little watch, but completely, completely forgotten about. Okay, all right. Uh and then in the final four of the uh the first round buys in the Atlanta region, jokester division, uh and another one here for you, Adnan, and for all of our Canadian listeners as
1: well, Slapshot. I mean, listen, I, I, and I'll agree with this. It's probably a little overrated. If you watch Slapshot now, you go, okay, it's a little dated now. All right, Paul Newman, a bunch of handsome brothers, let's foil like but still iconic. And quite honestly, hockey's a genre with not many good hockey movies, so Slapshot gets a little more love. And uh a personal favorite of yours, I know Kingpin, also omitted. I love Kingpin. Thank you for mentioning that. The other day, how did you know that's a personal favorite? Have I mentioned that? We've it, talked about it. Okay, yeah, because the other day I said, I go, this is unbelievable. Randy Quaid before he went insane. That whole movie is unbelievable. <laughs> I love Bill Murray in that movie. Yeah, Kingpin should be a one scene. That's all I care about there.
2: A couple more here, Rick. And the final two in the scrapper division of
1: Atlanta, The Wrestler. Awesome. And, and Ali. The Wrestler is one of my favorite, not even sports movies, but movies of the past uh century. Ali, I don't know. I thought, listen, Will Smith was great, but as a movie, I thought it was a little disappointing. There's great moments, and Michael Mann's a good director. Remember watching that? And you, you would have thought, Michael Mann, Will Smith, Ali, this is going to be one of the great movies do. And afterwards, you're kind of like, felt a little flat at times. Like, I'd rather just watch When We Were Kings. I'd rather watch an Ali documentary. Maybe that's just a, the compliment to Ali, the fact that you can't ever really... Uh, replicate the original. Once again, Cinephile ESPN, let us know what you think of our picks.
0: When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in of. All
1: right, Ricky, Grandma's Boy right now, apparently off the charts. People are looking up this film left and right because of your support of that film on Cinephile. What do we got this time?
2: Well, this time we've got one of... uh one of American auteur Sydney Lumet's final films. Yes. The overlooked Find Me Guilty, a 2006 courtroom comedy based on the real-life events of the 1986 to 1988 Lucchese family uh, RICO trial in New Jersey. It currently holds a 61% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, with Roger Moore of the Orlando Sentinel saying it's, it's a static situation and points are scored in tiny increments, but the late Roger Ebert stated that while the film is not thrilling it is very genuinely interesting. And at the risk of bearing the lead about this film, I have to start with its one big flaw. Like the court case it emulates, which was argued for more than 21 months, the two-hour, four-minute runtime does drag for the subject matter at hand. I state this of the way Lumet constructed a story because he isn't out to make a prolonged version of 12 Angry Men, but tell the story of one man in particular, Giacomo Jackie DeNorsio, played by Vin Diesel in what is his best performance to date. Diesel's casting was handpicked by the real-life Jackie DiNorsio, who was a fan of his from The Fast and the Furious, obviously, since this movie came out in 2006 and was produced in 2003-2004. S- and it was signed off on by Lumet. Much to the surprise of everyone, D- uh, Diesel gives a tremendously grounded and earnest performance as the lifetime criminal who refuses to turn witness in the fa- in the fame trial. After being shot by his junkie cousin and then nailed for a bad drug charge, Jackie is sentenced to 30 years in prison, thanks in part to his infamous rap sheet. Prosecutors attempt to literally wine and dine Jackie into testifying against the mob family he works for, to which they are greeted with a hefty F.U. <laughs> Jackie fires his lawyer, who tells him to take the deal while also trying to get paid for his services that landed Jackie in prison to begin with. When it comes time for the RICO trial, Jackie decides to defend himself, using only his charisma... Using his charisma to compensate for his lack of legal sophistication, proclaiming, I'm not a gangster, I'm a gagster. <laughs> the rest is literally history, as most of the courtroom dialogue was directly from the case. The strength of the film indeed rests with Diesel's surprising charm and nuance in the lead role, as well as a, as a solid supporting turn from Peter Dinklage as the lead defense attorney, Ben Klandis. Much like Goodfellas, we can't help but fall for the uh, the pizzazz of the lead character. Although unrefined and contemptuous, Jackie D is a man of certain of a certain moral fiber, one who will never turn on his friends, and nor will he rat out his family. The real crime is that the film never found an audience. Freestyle releasing, a four-hire indie distributor, released the film in March of 2006 with little to no advertising. It grossed only 2.6 million of its 13 million dollar budget on just over 400 screens, and then quietly went to home video where it has stayed for the last decade. While Find Me Guilty does not rise to the level of 12 Angry Men, The Verdict, or even My Cousin Vinny, it is an entertaining uh, film and worth a watch if you can find it.
1: I would have loved it if you said, well, it doesn't rise to the level of those films, it rises above it. Just go ahead and just completely take down all those
0: you sacred cows. It, 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 I'm,
1: I'm, it is what it is, but at the same
2: time, it is uh, a lot better than... What some of the critics said and, and for the
1: audience of what it got to. I'm on board with this in defensive. I've seen it only because of Lumet and Ebert, I believe, gave it three stars. So I'm like, all right, Ebert liked it. It's Lumet I'm in. And I, I agree with much of your review. I like good use of, uh, some verbiage here, although unrefined and contemptuous. What I, Interesting is a good word for it, because all those words you're saying, like, what does that mean? Goes, oh, well, it's not good, it's not bad, but it is always interesting. It was always watchable. And at times I thought Diesel was really good. I'm like, mm, this guy's actually, I don't know, some action here, but he's kind of good. And at times he was just cartoonish. like He was overplaying the Italian gangster guy. But it was always interesting. Even when he was, I thought, kind of cartoonish, I never looked away from it. And the actual story was based, in fact, and I'm glad you mentioned Dinklage. I forgot about that. Dinklage was pretty good as the actor as well. Find Me Guilty will be a tough one to find. Hopefully, you can do so. You that can do it in- on eBay. You can get it on eBay for about five, six bucks right now. So really? I would I would check it out. All right. Good stuff. Thanks so much for always dancing the Cinephile. Uh, tell all your friends, subscribe now. Uh, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe. Do what you got to do. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN
4: app.